0: Maybe it's a little bit underemphasized the way that a particular librettist can really radically change a composer's language. You know, we think of composers sometimes in this platonic sense of, you know, their stylistic periods, but like, what are the forces that, that shape those things? And if you look at even a composer like Verdi, um, he undergoes these seismic shifts based on whether he's working with you know someone that he can boss around and someone who is just going to deliver kind of conventional you know I describe it as firewood that's just going to be kind of you know kindling set flame or if he's dealing with someone super ambitious like Ariko Boito um, who is going to stretch is going to stretch his limits
1: Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. It's not typically a podcast where I talk to composers, though, partly because that's what I do in my day job as a musicologist. A lot of my research involves interviewing living American composers, and sound expertise is usually a nice break from that. But I'm willing to make the occasional exception, and one such exception just came up recently. The opportunity to talk to the composer Matthew O'Coin, who just had a successful run of his opera, Eurydice, at the Met. O'Coin isn't just a composer, though. He's a fascinating thinker about the history and culture of opera, and last month published an insightful book, The Impossible Art. We spoke in December about the book and how his own work fits into the history of opera as a quote-unquote impossible art form. This is, it should be clear, another bonus episode. Season three is still pretty far off, unfortunately. But I hope you enjoy this great insightful conversation with Matthew Ocoin. So um you, the the framing you have for your book, which I, I really enjoyed reading and I just finished a couple of days ago. Um like, centers around this idea of opera as an impossible art form. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, like, why you see opera as being so, quote unquote, impossible historically?
0: Yeah, I mean the term in a kind of loving or affectionate sense. I had the idea even before the pandemic, but of course, it took on new resonances when when opera became literally impossible and illegal and unsanitary. Um, I think that uh, at its most kind of ambitious or utopian opera reaches for this ideal synthesis of of experience really of of multiple art forms uh, of of the human senses. You know it reminds me of those wonderfully kind of corny attempts in the early days of cinema to like release perfumes into the air so that people would have this total sensory experience. And of course, you know, audiences fled, you know, gagging when perfumes were released into the air. I sort of think opera attempts that um, by its basic nature. And and I guess I, I prefer to look at pieces uh, not, on the metric of whether they succeed in doing that, because I don't think it's really achievable. But I sort of prefer to look at individual pieces through the ways that they kind of touchingly fail or do something unexpected, um, based on the premise that that they're reaching for this 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 thing that never quite will be reached.
1: So there's like this this ideal, and then there's the reality of the kind of. I mean, you do you do a really nice job of kind of showing the day to day of opera creation, the kind of composer librettist dynamic, especially. Um, you know it's funny, I was just I've been having put the aside the book for a couple of days and thinking about like, okay, do I think opera is an impossible art form and And like the way I started to think about it well, I was like, in the United States, opera is definitely an impossible art form, but like I don't know, <laughs> right. like in Italy in the eighteenth century, it seemed like pretty possible, but I, it's a different I guess way of looking at that metaphor. Um, yeah, like compared to other art forms, how do you kind of evaluate this impossibility?
0: I guess one one way that I'd put it is I I do think every work of art or maybe every act of human communication is also a kind of failure because, Mm. you know, a failure and a discovery at the same time, because I think if you're doing it right, you end up saying something different than what you set out to say in a conversation, in a work of art. Um, And that's true in sort of uh, low overhead art forms like poetry as well. But the thing that interests me about opera is that Everything is kind of more egregious and obvious and like embarrassing because of mm. the sheer scale of it and the number of moving parts. That I think the um, uh, when things don't quite come together, you know, the seams are very obvious. Um, and so I think it's a dynamic that's that is more universal, but I think it's 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 most readily explicable in in opera. Yeah, just
1: like this idea that you have both the coming together of all these art forms and like, usually like two out of 10 of them tend to work really well and then the others are like the at, at service of the of the two or whatever. Um, totally. Yeah.
0: So maybe let's talk
1: a little bit about kind of the specifics of the book in terms of how did you select the works that you wanted to focus on the different um, both composers, you obviously, and librettists, you wanted to address, but also the specific kind of themes and 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 works that that resonated with this idea of impossibility.
0: Well, I think authors are often not supposed to call their books essay collections. I don't know. There's some aversion to to that term in in, in publishing, but really, I do think this is kind of a you know love letter to a bunch of individual pieces. It is an essay collection, yeah. Um, and the guiding kind of force is this idea of, okay, how are these pieces impossible? How, what what do they set out to do? What do they actually do instead? Um, but really what unifies them is just that they're the pieces that I've lived with the longest and had and had something to say about. Um, I mean, there's a whole long section about Orpheus pieces, um, which, you know, I didn't do a deep dive into those pieces until after my opera Eurydice, which I wrote with Sarah Rule was... Was finished because um, I didn't want to kind of clutter my mind. Mm. But I think that whole section is is pretty important to the book, just because I think the story, you know, the myth of of Orpheus kind of um, is like the the seed of the rest of the art form. Um, I, I think it does this kind of recursive uh, impossible thing of uh, you know it, it it announces that it's going to sing music that conquers death. And of course that's not gonna happen. Um, It also claims to be about the recovery of a loved one. And I think that's totally not what it's about. Um, It's about kind of loss as an excuse for music making which becomes kind of the foundational act of the rest of the art form. So it felt important to spend some time with the different ways that 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 story has has resonated um, throughout the ages. Yeah. When you
1: well maybe let's back up to the how the essays kind of came in, into existence. So mm. you are a composer and a conductor and like a bajillion other <laughs> musical things. How did you get to the point where you thought like I would like to start writing about the operas that I'm playing, studying, starting to write myself, that
0: kind of thing? I mean, I'm mostly a composer, I think, <laughs> uh, b- but. Uh, I guess when you're an opera composer, you're always filtering things through through language, and um, and I had spent a lot of time with these pieces, kind of in my like apprenticeship years, um, and uh, I'd had kind of ideas about the way that you know what made them tick. Um, and a few years ago, um, a wonderful editor at the New York Review of Books, Michael Shea reached out and kind of said, "Do you want to write about this this music book or that that music book?" And it 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 kind of provided this wonderful. Side, you know, project this 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 kind of window into another. Um, really, it's another part of my mind that I hadn't exercised in close to a decade. Um, and a bunch of the essays came into being through through that relationship. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, I thought, well, I've already got a few of these, and I have nothing but time because I have no work for the next eighteen months. So um, it it kind of quickly cohered when when the world shut down.
1: What does for any of like, let's take Rake's Progress, for example, what what does the kind of research process look like for you in terms of you, you knew the opera already, but you wanna go deeper into it to figure out what you have to kind of say about
0: it? I'm glad you brought up Rake's Progress because I think that's a piece where, you know, the facts have been hiding in plain sight, but um, at least I hadn't found um, the kind of synthesis of like what happened, what what made this piece come into existence. Um, in the case of that piece, I did a really deep dive into uh, the, the the extant documents between Stravinsky, Auden, and Kalman. Um, Auden's literary executor, Edward Mendelssohn, has done just a beautiful job um, gathering those materials. And there's a kind of little-known volume of Auden's uh, dramatic works. You know, the rake libretto, the Paul Bunyan project with Britain and many, many other things, his translations of of magic flute and and, and stuff like that. And in this collection, there are dozens, if not hundreds of of messages um, among the creators. Um, And uh, what was attractive to me about delving into that piece is because we're dealing with WH Auden who's you know a super central figure you know very well known to, to, to people who who read books but maybe don't know this art form as well it's it's incredibly clear the way that they worked and I think Auden is just so lucid about you know he, he's he's very pragmatic it's like he's a woodworker or something he's just describing kind of uh, what will work and, and and what won't in a way that I think pretty much anyone can understand Um, And also I became fascinated by the way that I think he kind of encoded a lot of things about his romantic partnership with Chester Coleman, his co-author of the libretto, into the story. I mean, you know, the character of Baba the Turk is this kind of flagrantly gay, you know, this kind of drag queen character. And I think they sort of hoped that Stravinsky wouldn't get you know the, the whole notion of a beard and you know the bearded lady. Um, it's just this this parade of of, of in jokes, um, and then so so that process followed by what Stravinsky does when he's handed the finished text is just like my favorite illumination of of how an opera is kind of cooked through. Um, and the challenge I wanted to set my, myself was: can I make this interesting to a general readership? Can I present it in a way so that it feels like kind of like a story? um and hopefully it's interesting to musicians but not just to musicians yeah 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 i found it
1: fascinating i you know that's an opera that i haven't i mean i know like the stravinsky rite of spring scholarly very well but i haven't spent much time with rake's progress besides just listening to it um like it seems like the kind of central thing that you are compelled by in these operas beyond the work or whatever is the composer librettist dynamic. Is that do you kind of is that a result of like writing this book while also writing an opera with a librettist yourself? Like how did you kind of conceptualize, okay, like I'm reading about this relationship between Stravinsky and Auden. and I'm reading their back and forth and I'm having my own backs and forths with with a librettist uh, with Sarah.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but Um, For one thing, it's a heck of a lot easier to talk about um, those relationships because they're often kind of stormy and also they deal with words, not just notes. Um, But also I think maybe it's a little bit um, under-emphasized the way that a particular librettist can really radically change a composer's language you know we think of composers sometimes in this platonic sense of you know their stylistic periods but like what are the forces that that shape those things and if you look at even a composer like verdi um he undergoes these seismic shifts based on whether he's working with you know someone that he can boss around and someone who is just going to deliver kind of conventional you know i describe it as firewood that's just going to be kind of you know, kindling set aflame or if he's dealing with someone super ambitious, like Ariko Boito, um, who is going to stretch, right. is going to stretch his limits.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing that's striking to me too, about the book, you know, I I don't keep up as well as I should with like opera scholarship more broadly. Um, is like in the kind of the, the drift, I would say in musicological work on opera in the last maybe 15 years has been to focus on kind of like, s- setting aside a little bit of the kind of the the work as a score with words and music and focusing mm-hmm. on on how it's brought into it performance whether that's issues of kind of staging technology singing like it was striking to me that actually mm-hmm. you're though you're engaging with your your the impossibility of operas through the lens of this collision of all these art forms you tend to focus in on on just a couple of them um like mm-hmm. it, I guess that's in part a virtue of you being a composer too. I don't know if you, uh, how you kind of think about that.
0: I think part of it is just that I have very little visual imagination. I'm, I really have very little kind of mechanical know-how. Like I can't fix fix things around the house. I don't understand how sets get built. Um, you know, So for example, doing this show in New York right now, you know, I love to. there have been a couple performances where I've stood backstage, <laughs> rather than in the in the audience, and you know, it's just so mysterious and wizardly to me the way that the the, the stage technicians and everyone are doing their work. So I, I think I would just have a heck of a lot less to say um, when it comes to singing, though, and like the 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 way that the act of singing has changed. I do think I have more to say about that. I touch on it a little bit in the introduction, like the the impact of the existence of amplification and so forth, but I kind of think that's a project for for another book. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, it strikes me too that the, the Bel Canto kind of period is not a central focus of the book, maybe in part because the role of the singer is so much more central to that than the composer. I don't know. Are you, are you a, a Rossini and Bellini fan, or is that like something that, you know, it's, it's interesting to me what, what ended up in there and what didn't end up in there in terms of like tackling opera, right?
0: Yeah, right. I mentioned that like, you know, Wagner is not there, not because I don't love Wagner, but because, you know, he's been very well covered, especially in recent years. Um, uh, yeah, you know, Belcanto is interesting for me. I, I, I did kind of apprentice at the Caramore Festival when I was in college. Um, oh, cool.
1: When, I, I was, worked in their box office when I was- Did in you college.
0: really? Yeah. What a what an idyllic spot. Um yeah. was did bel canto at caramore still exist? Yeah, your, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, so I, I worked as a coach there and I I actually have a a lot of respect for that approach to the act of singing. I think that just this basic thing of, you know, what is legato? How do you connect one note to the next? Um it, it sounds basic, but it's really hard to 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 make it really seamless. So I, I love it as an approach to activating the human body. I'm less interested in those pieces. I mean, uh, Rossini's Rossini's hard for me. I, I never quite uh, trust <laughs> um, trust him. Um, yeah Bellini I trust a little bit more but yeah I think I just I just have less (laughs) to say I mean it's a good it's a it's a good bowl of pasta like how much can you say about it (laughs) (laughs) um
1: like I I think the most like interesting uh not necessarily the most interesting chapter of the book for me. I, I I kind of enjoyed them all in different ways, but like the most interesting inclusion was Kaya Chernovan mm. in terms of like, even Addis, I often see crop up in a lot of kind of like, let's talk about the history of opera. Let's go from, you know, Monteverdi mm. to Addis. Um, can you talk a little bit about what speaks to you about Chernovan's work and why you kind of see it as part of this larger continuity Or Because I think a lot of people would just kind of place it more in the like, new music world than in the opera world.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, I kind of just barely missed um, Chaya Chernovan as a teacher. I mean, I did my undergrad work at Harvard and she was a professor there. I took kind of a group class with her, but didn't didn't really get to know her. Um, I included her and specifically her opera heart chamber um, because I, I think she really attempts something that, I've always believed possible, but never really seen a composer do, which is to write a grand scale opera that is almost entirely inward and almost entirely devoid of um, external event. I mean, there are plenty of you know of, of operas and certainly stagings that are quite abstract and and that focus on kind of inner experience, but normally it takes the form of you know, recognizable acts of, of violence or um, uh, ecstasy or whatever. And the thing that I find so extraordinary about Heart Chamber is it's all the moments in a relationship, in the early stages of a relationship, when you feel flooded with these incredibly intense feelings that you usually don't have words for. Um, and I think, in a way, Chernovan's goal in the piece was to... M- make those moments feel as huge in an opera house as they feel in your head or in your body. Um, and to do that in a moment is cool enough, but to do it for two hours and to really trust that kind of experience um, is, I think, totally thrilling. And also, you know, if, if you know my music, it has very little to do with with Chernovan's uh Uh, modes of notation and, and, and her concepts of sound. But I mean, for me, she's one of the few composers where I I, I find it such an overwhelming experience that it almost makes me want to go back to the drawing board and think, you know, (laughs) should I just, should I just throw away the piano altogether and and work with, with different sonic materials? I mean, yeah, that's rare. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's striking that you mentioned like, the need to avoid Orpheus until you were done with your Orpheus opera, or at, the, at least the need to avoid re- revisiting them. Like which of, which of these operas kind of ended up bearing the most weight on Eurydice and also like which of the kind of composer librettist dynamics were in the back of your head when you were working with, with Sarah?
0: Um, in a funny way, I think the process has the most to do with and I'm not comparing the pieces at all, but just the process has the most sure. to do with like what Debussy did with Peleas, where he took hmm. a recently performed play and right. whittled it down to like, I don't know, 60, 70% of the original length. Uh, and I think in the in the same way that, you know, the materlink Link Peleas does not change radically. It's basically just a shortened version of the play. Um, that's mostly what the process for Eurydice was. And in in a way, that's why I approached Sarah in the first place and and why I landed on the play was I felt it was pretty close um, to being a libretto already. Um, There must be other examples, Um, but it's not, you know, it was not like a... I mean, I guess Salome, like, well, that's what literatura opera is, right? Like Salome and Electra too. Um, Totally, Salome is another good example.
1: So... Maybe let's, for those who haven't read the book, listeners, and you should, um, like walk me through kind of your relationship with Orpheus opera and how that led to your decision to kind of turn Orpheus into opera again, knowing that it had been done a few times before.
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to start near the end with, with, with this moment when I realized that Eurydice is not really an Orpheus and Eurydice play. Actually, I, I I didn't realize this until a couple of years into composition, but I really think um, the shape of Sarah's play is a an entirely different story that the myth is kind of contained within. Um, it's really uh, a more of a father-daughter story, and it's 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 more kind of a almost a. Uh, (laughs) growing up story, if you can grow up when you're already dead. I mean, really the the, the drama begins when Eurydice loses her memory um, and the the kind of central act where she's slowly recovering her sense of herself is I think really the the heart of the drama. But I did at one point think it was an Orpheus and Eurydice piece. So um, it goes back to early in 2014, I think, when I wrote a, a piece called The Orphic Moment for... Uh, my friends uh, Anthony Roth Costanzo, the countertenor, and Keir Gogwilt, the violinist. Um, it was kind of it felt sort of like a cantata sized piece, 16 or 17 minutes. Um, and it was entirely an explosion of the few milliseconds before Orpheus turns around. It's this kind of slightly sadistic um, take on on what's going through his mind at a subconscious level, and I, I think what's going through there is, um, I have to turn around, you know, because that's what will be most fruitful for for music. Um, and it was just one of those pieces that felt kind of like a personal landmark. Um, it, it 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 kind of set me on fire creatively, um, and I just felt oh, there's more to more to do here, and um, started toying. Well, yeah. What, what was your
1: Kind of at that point, engagement with all of the other Orpheus music stuff. Like, were you was that directly informing it at that point, or was that were you, were you trying to come to terms with your own version of this? Um,
0: you know, we premiered it on a double bill with the Gluck, which I conducted. So okay. I, you know, so I knew you the go. Gluck. Yeah. <laughs> I knew the Gluck well enough to perform it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I knew the Burt Whistle Mask of Orpheus yet, um, which I think is is an astonishing piece. Um, But the more I kind of lived with the idea of expanding that into a whole evening, the more the idea of it just being about male artistic narcissism began to kind of depress me. Um, And then a couple of people suggested that I get in touch with Sarah and I just found her, her take was kind of a breath of fresh air. Both her take on this story and more broadly um, the way that she juxtaposes tragedy and comedy or the, the quotidian and the surreal it's kind of, you know, I think in recent American opera uh, there is a tendency towards the gloomy, not necessarily the, um, the tragic, but just the sense that everything has to be so goddamn somber. Um, and uh I've been guilty of it myself. You know, my my piece crossing certainly lives in that kind of musky atmosphere, um, and I realized that I kind of wanted a way out. You know, I wanted somebody who was going to push me to 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 find uh, you know musical modes for humor and 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 surprise. Um, so yeah, it's a long way of saying that that was the route towards Eurydice.
1: Yeah, yeah, and revisiting the Orpheus mythology and opera, whether it's Monteverdi or Caccini or Bert Whistle
0: after finishing the opera. Mm. How, how has that informed how you think of the opera now? Uh, I think it really convinces me that it's not an Orpheus piece. I mean, m- my own piece, yeah. I really, yeah. you know, especially in the last act after the kind of moment of the look when there are like seven more giant dramatic events left, you know, I think, uh, I certainly forget that we're in this story at all by the time we get to the to the third act. Um, but, you know, uh, it's also reminded me how fertile this 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 story is. I mean, Harrison Birtwistle, as I say in the book, has really like spent something like 50 years um, obsessed with the, the story to the extent that I think you could argue that it has kind of generated most of his music, um, even some of the instrumental music. Um, and, uh, some may get bored with that. I don't, (laughs) I think it's, I think it's super fertile.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess you kind of like, you found your way out in a way of, of this feedback loop of Orpheus by not making it
0: an Orpheus. Yeah. I certainly think I've done for at least a few decades. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How I mean, so tonight's the final night of the Met run. How impossible has this felt <laughs> compared to the impossibility of opera
0: uh, writ large and that you tackle in the book? I mean, it's been shockingly smooth. And I, I say that having had a really difficult time Uh, with the premiere in LA where everyone in the cast got very sick and there were not understudies for most of the parts and there was no one else on the planet who knew it. And it was, it was just, um, it felt every day like it was just not going to happen. Um, And that continued through the performances. I I don't think we had a single performance in LA without some singer saying, I have laryngitis um, and so forth. Um, But that seems
1: like, it has to be a part of an opera's history of like, there just has to be some colossal failure before that.
0: Yeah. It's, 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 it's part of the deal. It's, it's in your contract in some way. Um, but so far in New York, I mean, we've had a really committed team um, and, you know, knock on wood, we have one more show to get through tonight. Uh, no one's gotten sick. Um, the, the audiences have been, uh, Sizable and you know not the audience that I know as the Met audience uh, exclusively, um, yeah. and also it's kind of been a revelation for me to not perform for once to just kind of sit yeah. back and, yeah. and 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 you know it, it's in very good hands with with both Yannick neze seguin and uh, Daniela Candelari, our assistant conductor, who who led one performance. So. Uh, this is all probably, you know, it's boring to talk about things going well, but it's been really, it's been really smooth. <laughs> well, there's one, one more opportunity. I've guess there is. <laughs> I've probably Co-opful jinxed failure, us. Right?
1: Are you like, um, how do you tackle the sitting in the audience while your opera happens? Well, you
0: know, I like... ran into Nico Muli at one of the performances and he was like, I can't believe you're sitting in the hall. I never sat in the hall for any of, of the shows. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel like I have to put myself through it. It feels like if I'm going to learn things and react, I, I, really should, should be there. Um, I've had one good excuse. We have an offstage chorus, um, that is amplified and, uh, What's extraordinary is they're actually four floors underground. They are very far away in in the Met's orchestra room, which is you know in in their personal underworld on the on the in, in the basement, um, and it's being piped in. But through a kind of amazing trick, it sounds like they're in the pit. It sounds like the sound is kind of emanating out of the pit, but um, it, it's very tricky in terms of balance. Um, so I've for some of the shows I've been sitting with um, Rob Gorton, the sound guy, and kind of uh, probably quite annoyingly, you know, been like hissing in his ear, you know, less, more, you know, because, you know, there are moments when you want the chorus to be totally overwhelming, and then there are moments when they have to get out of the way. So I've, I've kind of comforted myself by feeling like I have a little job to do. It's easier, you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: Coming out of the experience of both this opera at the Met and publishing the book, like what have you learned and how is that informing what you're going to be doing going forward creatively?
0: It's a great question. Um, I, I think I'm not the only composer to have had a kind of guilty sense that some aspects of the pandemic were good for one's work. You know, I was very depressed about the state of the world, but I also. Um, you know, I'm an introvert at heart. And, and there was some part of me that felt relief at not having the usual travel or or social obligations. And I do just feel kind of um, a a responsibility to recreate those conditions. um, Because I think, you know, uh, there were things about the process of writing Eurydice where, you know, this or that felt a bit crammed because of, other obligations, and it's just like I, I don't want to create that for myself again. You know, I uh, I'm, I'm thinking about really engaging with my my teacher Jory Graham's poems for a for a larger scale piece having to do with kind of how the planet is changing, a much more um, abstract kind of th- approach to to the theater, and I think that's something I'm attracted to as well. It was nice to it was nice to tell a good clear story for once, but I find myself wanting to go into weirder theatrical spaces um, and to just leave lots of time to let that piece kind of marinate. Um, so that's 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 my instinct after this, this very busy period. It's, it's, it's like, you know, there are so many gig economy pressures that evaporated uh, for a second during the pandemic and uh i want to try to learn some lessons from that i think it's it's like if we can all pull one or two things from that very difficult experience we might find a healthier way of of moving forward as a, as an industry yeah
1: yeah i was really i mean i i was really struck by how you grappled with uh in the Eurydice, I guess it was in the Eurydice chapter about talking about reading Nico's essay about kind of burnout and mental health and how that kind of forced that realization in your own brain of of both the kind of like individual experience of being like a young, hot composer, uh, hot in the sense of yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it in whatever um, sense, Will. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and also like what that is kind of a, as a kind of a structural piece of what's going on in the 2010s kind of gig economy too.
0: Yeah. What, what kind of struck me and scared me a little bit in that kind of amazing essay that, that Nico wrote is, oh. you know, the awareness that it can creep into the music. Um, how could it not, you know, if, if there's this pressure to just produce, produce, produce. Um, and you know, you listen to music from other cultures, other times, um, and you, and you hear the way that the, this sounds so kind of Marxist, you know, the conditions of production, Um, it impacts the the nature of the music and then the effect that has on a listener. So it really made me think in a different way about, you know, what do I want that to be? And what do I want the effect on the listener to be? And I think, Eurydice is already, you know, one step in, in, in a direction that I like, but I think I can go a lot further.
1: Mm. In what sense?
0: Um, time basically, you know, uh, letting, letting things marinate. Um, th- that's it basically. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah i I mean, the, uh, it's been interesting to follow the kind of like, it's always interesting for me to follow press phenomena around what happens when there's a new opera at the met because mm. often i don't get to see them and unfortunately i didn't get to see yours but uh to follow it from afar and like uh to just think about what you're saying versus like what the um like the two boys media frenzy was a decade ago um where nico was giving all these interviews which i think that that essay was kind of a response to in a way of like I you know, I want to be like a Baroque composer who can write a piece a week type thing. Um, mm. and that that's not like we don't live in the 17th century. And like and, and, if, you, yeah. and if you set those expectations for yourself, uh it, it 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 could yeah, it can lead to this kinds of creative, uh just like um I don't want to say create a failure, it's but like you come up against the wall of,
0: of something. Yeah. You can't just hand the Met Orchestra like a lead sheet and say yeah. this is this is it. But also I think one other thing that's changed for the better is, you know, in those seasons like close to a decade ago, it was like one new piece and that was it. Yeah. Um and so the spotlight and the pressure for it to be a masterpiece, goddammit, uh was so intense. Um and you know, with Terrence Blanchard's Fire Shut Up In My Bones opening this season and with, you know, Akhenaten and and Brett Dean's Hamlet later. um, It just feels in a nice way that, that uh, there's maybe something for everybody and every piece does not have to be all things for all people. And like, that is super great. I mean, it's at the same time, I've been kind of keenly aware that some of the smaller companies in the area maybe have not come back. Um, so that's, I, I don't think that the Metropolitan Opera should be the only show in town. Um, and it's kind of oddly felt Met-centric in New York this this fall. So I really hope there's, there's diversity of scale um, as well as like diversity within a season. But I think certainly the diversity within a season um, in a lot of senses has gotten better and it's made it less toxic for any given artist.
1: Yeah, yeah. How does all of, I mean, the book stuff and coming off Eurydice with a new sense of what you want to be doing. How is that informing your own Amok or Amok? Is that how you pronounce or Amok? I guess. Yeah, we say Amok, like okay. Toronto Amok. Yeah, yeah. Which is your your opera or not your opera company, but this kind of collaborative uh, thingy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You you could describe it.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, Amok is a collective. Uh, it's an artist collective, basically. Um, Amok A M O C stands for American Modern Opera Company, but we are an opera company mainly in the sense that we are artists from multiple disciplines that make work together, like period. Um, Yeah, I I co-founded Amok with with the director, Zach Winokur in 2017, out of this sense that um, various kinds of institutional structures, opera companies, but also ballet companies and orchestras um, uh, did not really provide the ideal model for um, the creation of new work and collaboration among artists. You know, we kind of just took this basic question of, you know, what stays consistent in like a big opera company? And well, it's like the building (laughs) and the administration who are the ones making most of the decisions, plus the orchestra and the chorus. What does not stay consistent it's the solo artists, the directors, the conductors, the choreographers, um, and we just kind of thought that's kind of backwards. Like you know, the Duke Ellington band or the Pina Bausch dance company were only able to make the work that they did because there was consistency among artists working together over a long period. And so, really, what we wanted to do was to create that in a in a pretty informal way to just sort of say, okay, who are the colleagues that we know we want to work with forever. You know, people like Julia Bullock or Devon Tynes or Keir Gwilt or the dancer, Bobby Jean Smith. And can we just bring them together uh, and create a space for them to, to meet each other and, and forge connections? And, you know, it's it's really worked. It's become a family in the sense of a very messy, complicated family dynamic, um, but also in the sense of, we really feel like we're, <laughs> we're in it for the long haul. Um, and at the moment, our big project is we're collectively curating the Ojai Festival um, for, for, for next June. Like we collectively are the music director. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this experience has has made me feel even more, the experience of this fall has made me feel even more committed to Amok as an entity because there's, you um, Uh, there's a real openness to whatever ideas people want to bring forward. There's never the sort of, well, you know, will that sell enough seats? You know, will that work kind of from a marketing perspective? It's, it's much more kind of ground level, you know, what do the individual artists want to be doing? Um, And uh, yeah, we, we hope it'll be a model that people steal because, because it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's great.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me and uh, I hope tonight goes well.
0: Thank you, Will. Uh, I hope I haven't uh, put a curse on us by saying we've gotten through all the shows okay so far, but so stay tuned.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, people should buy your book.
0: Thank you very much. Take care.
1: Many thanks to Matthew O'Coin for that fascinating conversation. His book, The Impossible Art, Adventures in Opera, is out now with FSG. Please visit our website, soundexpertise.org, to learn more about his writing and music. As always, check out the work of our great producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. You can follow me on Twitter at SeatedOvation, although I'm doing a lot more parenting than tweeting these days, and I'm very happy about that. And... Relatedly, I can't tell you exactly when season three will get started, but I'm guessing it's not until the fall at the earliest. So check out our back catalog and stay tuned.